the curmudgeon rock report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for the rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. Arturo Andrade, how are you doing tonight uh, here uh, in the curmudgeonly world? Christopher O'Connor, I'm doing just fine. What are we, Franz Ferdinand? (laughs) (laughs) I want to be with you, Michael. (laughs) Well, I I, I, I figure, you know, uh, since today's episode, we're delving into our the chapter two of our epic uh dissection of the parallel careers of prince and michael jackson um i kind of figure we might as well you know since it's basically when, when we're going into the 80s we're kind of really reflecting on our childhood <laughs> yeah very, very much so which we, which we'll get into uh this was a very personal uh exercise for me hence hence, is... hence hence the very childish beginning to this episode yes <laughs> yes yeah so uh, yeah we're 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 slipping back into uh eight-year-old uh chris and eight-year-old arturo which uh no, no knowing how uh oh you folks you think we're weird now <laughs> you should have seen us in 1983 us enter now the fabulous uh, parallel universe uh long-time listeners all nine of you uh know <laughs> that uh, this is something that we do every episode and it really answers the question uh what if we lived in a world where arturo and i and the rest of you could program the radio uh book the arenas book the stadiums uh be the tastemakers and put the people that belong uh, on the pedestal and make sure that they are on, uh, uh, indeed, uh, that pedestal. So instead of uh, the baby who is turning out to be the dick, I guess he's been making some really awful comments here lately. Uh, what, what did he say lately? I, I like I his have, first album. Yeah, he's good, but I guess he's been making some homophobic comments or something oh, really? like that. Yeah, oh. he's he, yeah he's he, he's good. He's one. I think he's probably the second or third best rapper on the market right now. He's definitely the best guy from the South. Uh, but, but but now he's revealed himself to be a homophobic asshole. Hmm. Pretty much, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I talking about something that I don't know the details on. That's why they call it banter. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so here we are in the parallel universe, and we're we, we're the tastemakers, and we're making the stars. And so, Arturo, uh, who are you making a star out of this week? Well, this guy, his name is John Murray. He's been around for quite a while. And it's his new album, came out this year, called uh, The Stars Are God's Bullets. Now, back in 2012, this guy, John Murray, he is a Mississippi singer-songwriter now residing in Ireland. Uh, He put out an album called The Graceless Age back in 2012, 
which in my opinion is a folk and country rock masterpiece that really, in my opinion, serves as one of the most haunting, harrowing, achingly beautiful explorations of drug addiction and its consequences ever recorded. (laughs) Uh, Imagine like Neil Young at his most singer songwriterly, meaning more or less after the gold rush era, Neil mixed with later period birds at their most elegiac, but with a more modern band of horses style sound. Yeah. Um, newly, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. pretty much what he sounds like. He's good though. He's a really good songwriter. Uh, newly clean and sober, he released a badly produced, poorly mixed, underwritten hodgepodge of like subtle electronic experiments and romantic heartbreak called "A Short History of Decay" back in 2017. Even though it had a couple of great songs in there, for the most part, it made one wonder if the guy should have just stuck to the drugs. just kidding john we don't want you to die um however murray has bounced back in a really strong way with this brand new album the stars are god's bullets in which he kind of goes back to his classic country folk rock sound but this time with much heavier grungier dirty sounding guitars um standout tracks uh in my opinion are the single Oscar Wilde came here to make fun of you. Hey, at least sobriety is giving the guy a sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a rye, and the song is kind of funny. It's kind of a, it's, it's, a, it's a wry, darkly comic breakup song set to like this mid-tempo, sparsely funky country rock with ambient pedal steel guitar waffling in and out of the mix. Uh, the title track is really good too. Uh, uncharacteristic for Murray. It has this really aggressive fuzz guitar scrunk. And it's the closest thing the album comes to a radio-friendly single. At least a curmudgeonly parallel universe radio station single. Yeah, th- thank you for the clarification, sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the other really good song is the very, very 1990s alt-rock sound-alike, I Refuse to Believe You Could Love Me. Um, after the masterpiece that he put out almost a decade ago, it's uh, nice to see John Murray bounce back with a, a strong album. Uh, my pick for uh, this week's Parallel Universe is kind of a, uh, I guess you could argue, kind of straddles uh, mm. uh, the Parallel Universe and the actual universe at this point. Yeah. It's kind of like the, um, uh, you never watch the show Fringe, but uh, it reminds me of kind of uh, how uh, characters can live in both uh, universes, uh, back and forth at the same time. And meanwhile, the parallel universe is decaying. Mm. So it makes it kind of tragic, but anyway, uh, talking about Lucy Dacus, uh, fabulous, uh, young singer songwriter. Uh, she is from Virginia, uh, specifically Richmond, Virginia. And, uh, she has gained a really strong uh, reputation in indie scenes as a lyricist, singer-songwriter, and uh, not quite a punk chick, but a, but a rock chick. You know, she's yeah. got this independent uh, streak uh, to her. Although and, she kind of abandoned the rock a bit with this new album. Yes, and, and that's where I was going. So her first couple records, uh, including the debut No Burden, were pretty crunchy, but still had, you know, she had obvious uh, pop, Hook, uh, writing gifts and uh, 
uh, lyrical gifts. Uh, I mean, really strong lyrical gifts. Uh, so there's a connection here uh, between uh, her debut, uh, no, uh, no Burden, and this album, which uh, I think was probably going to be the best album I hear this year. And I know I've probably said that two or three times on this cast, but I mean it this time, uh, home video. Uh, so when she did No Burden, she uh, led that uh, album off with a song called I Don't Want to Be Funny Anymore, which really great song, a really crunchy song, you know, kind of guitar, rock, power, poppy thing. But she starts it off with the lyric, uh, I don't want to be funny anymore. Yeah, I'll be the gossip. Hear it through the grapevine. Pass it on. She's done with the old times. That funny girl uh, doesn't want to smile for a while. Yeah, and it's, it's just kind of, you know, defiant uh, uh, persona that she introduces. Well, I think this record, home video, really kind of answers, well, you know, what is that girl's origin story? You know, yeah, that, sound, that sounds like kind of a hurt young girl. And so uh, this record, uh, it's semi-biographical and semi, uh, I think it's not a stretch to say it, sort of semi-Bruce Springsteen, you know? Mm. That uh, yeah. it reminds me of a Springsteen line from his Broadway show. Like I, I was never a factory worker. I just had fucking talent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, so, and so maybe she's got that going on. And so this is kind of uh, it's a record. Uh, it's called Home Video. Uh, I think for a reason. It's really a concept record about uh, formative years, about friendships, about learning, about how you know learning hard lessons. Uh, grieving for friends, empathizing with friends, uh, looking at love's lost and then love's gained and love's lost and uh, all of these things uh, and just really kind of hooks into her childhood and, and this idea of, of being a uh, middle class, upper middle class kid from Richmond or suburb, suburban Virginia, which basically is the beginning of the Bible Belt, um, you know, growing up uh, in a Christian household and and those things. And so you get a lot of really touching, uh, really uh, uh, vivid uh, lyrics on here. It, and so you combine that with uh, an echoey uh, sort of mid-tempo uh, pop beat, which, you know, these days is kind of standard issue for these singer-songwriter chicks in the mainstream. But here really works. It almost has a hypnotic effect. And, and what it does is it almost, uh, you know, has this... Um, it's almost like a perfect middle spot for you to actually listen to the lyrics. It almost like forces you uh, to listen. And so this record starts with probably the most up-tempo, you know, blatantly commercial thing. And wouldn't you know it, it's the first single uh, yeah. called, called Hot and Heavy. And uh, starts with this wonderful uh, line that pretty much sets up the entire record uh, where it says, and, and Dacus sings, uh, being back here makes me hot in the face hot blood in my pulsing veins, heavy memories weighing on my brain, hot and heavy in the basement of your parents' place. You used to be so sweet. Now you're a firecracker on a crowded street. Couldn't look away even if I wanted. Try to walk away, but I come back to the start. Uh, see, see where the Springsteen yeah. <laughs> comparison yeah. starts, to, starts to come in. Yeah. And so basically that album, uh, that verse is a preamble to the rest of the record. Yeah. Where she- yeah I mean, this, this album really, it's, you said it's a concept record. I wouldn't say concept because it's not much of a story. It's more of a thematic record. 
Yeah. And, and, and thematic in this, it's just the, every song, the whole album is just a reflection of her on a reflection of her youth yes. and her history of friendships and romantic relationships and how yes. it's and how Absolutely. it's shaped to this day. You know, it's yeah. But, but even some of it is a little bit contemporary. Like I said, there, there's a couple of songs that are like, you know, sort of looking back where we are now, where we were then. And so it, it, I think you had it right. It's more of an anthology, you know, look, yeah. look at it as more of sort of a, uh, uh, an anthology of poetry or, or a, uh, a, a series of little, little essays. But what it does is it forms this whole, uh, this, this really kind of moving whole and, you know, and she really goes into some interesting spots. Uh, she's got uh, songs in there, uh, basically empathizing with a friend who's got a, um, control uh, issue or is under the thumb of a uh, mostly absent, but still domineering dad that she's trying to to please no matter what. Right. Uh, You know, so that's one persona. She's obviously got some old boyfriends in there. Uh, And then she's got this, uh, what I think is uh, the best lyric on the album is an album. It's a song towards the end called please stay, uh, which is a really great uh, relationship song. And this idea of, uh, I don't like, I don't like your habits. Uh, I want to control you, but please stay. I mean, it's, it's basically an anth- It's, it's one, it's a really interesting song about codependence. I'm not going to call it great, but it's a really yeah. moving lyric, uh, about, about codependence. And, uh, which is interesting because, you know, I'm four months into a marriage. And so I kind of relate to this, you yeah. know, this, this idea of, uh, you know, you drive me nuts, you leave your shit on the floor, uh, which actually paraphrases a lyric from this, but you know, and that you, you know, quit your job, change your name, change your mind, go back to school, go back to sleep, blah, blah, blah. But Hey, but please stay. Well, like I said earlier today, we're doing the riveting second installment of our epic series, chronicling the eerily parallel careers of the two Titans of 1980s pop. The two male titans, at least. Titans. <laughs> right. Uh, in the previous chapter, chapter one, we covered the beginnings of Prince and Michael Jackson's solo careers up to their uh, respective breakthrough albums. For Michael, it was Off the Wall in 1979, and for Prince, Dirty Mind in 1980. So for this episode, we will cover their ascendancy to pop stardom and overall pop culture immortality uh, spanning the years 1982 to 1986, uh, as well as the aftermath and the physical and psychological toll such stardom took, especially on Michael Jackson. Uh, Michael released Thriller in 1982 as um, anyone who knows anything about music knows it's the biggest selling album of all time. Uh, it made him the biggest pop star of all time. Uh, Prince released 1999 in 1982, which did for him what Off the Wall did for Michael, uh, blowing up big in the mainstream pop world. Prince followed that up with the blockbuster album Purple Rain in 1984, which put him in the Michael Jackson sphere of super duper stardom. Plus, there were not one, but two major motion pictures featuring his Purple Highness. Uh, Purple Rain, of course, the Purple Rain movie, and the self-directed Under the Cherry Moon. Plus, 
he had more number one hits with the albums Around the World in a Day in 1985 and Parade in 1986. Um, whereas with Michael, he blew up with Thriller and the aftermath of Thriller, as you, Chris, are going to go into detail, you could pretty much say is the beginning of the end for him. Yeah. Um, whereas for Prince, this is the period where Prince takes over James Brown's crown as the hardest working man in show business. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, really, yeah, I, I guess it's a little bit of a um, an overstatement to say that it was beginning of the end for Michael because uh, he probably, um, as a performer, uh, he might have made more money on the bad tour. I mean, we'll talk about that in the next episode, but he yeah, might have made right. more, like he toured forever on bad and, you know, that was a worldwide tour. He probably made a gazillion and a half dollars uh, right. on that tour. So it's not like it was the beginning of the end. But, yeah, it was the beginning of the the personal issues. But Yeah, you know, definitely. But, but, yeah, things didn't really blow up until 1993 for, you know, an obvious and very well-publicized reason. Uh, but, yeah, no, this is, like I said, this is where, you know, Michael becomes the king of the universe, not just pop, but the actual king of the universe. And then has to deal with the fallout from that. And, you know, there were just a couple of things that happened during this period, especially one big thing, which uh, we'll get into it, but uh, uh, you can, uh, Don King might actually be the source of blame for the main <laughs> pivot point of, of Michael's uh, adult life. And the, uh, and the new England Patriots football team are involved somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, basically without Michael and his brothers, uh, Bob Kraft, you don't get the Bob Kraft and you don't get the Tom Brady and all that. So (laughs) interesting aside. So like I said, Michael was weird in a lot of friggin' ways and that's one of them. So, uh, yeah, this will be a good episode. Uh, you know, Prince's stuff from this period is pretty special, uh, as well. And, you know, it's not anything that we were going to get into in tremendous depth, but I think we should just talk about it just briefly before we dive in. Uh, there's a part of me that, still kind of thinks and you know this is you know i i see the world or i see america as like one big cracker uh uh, fest (laughs) yeah if it wasn't for the billy jean and little red corvette videos breaking through and getting on the air we may still not have any black artists um on mtv (laughs) i mean i I think it was a combination of uh no joke i think it was uh leadership and uh, uh cbs viacom whichever one of those actually owned MTV at the time. And uh, believe it or not, David Bowie, I don't know if you remember this, but, uh, but David Bowie did an interview with Mark Goodman on uh, uh, MTV in 1984. I think yeah. after those two were out, but basically he yeah. was just calling them out and playing like not only white artists, but basically like the same, the same eight white artists, you know, it was like yeah. him, Pat Benatar, Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like Ultravox of all. <laughs> I yeah. never understood that one, but, uh, yeah, it was it, Duran Duran. Uh, yeah. so anyway, without, without those guys, you know, black, they're, they're the ones that kind of paved the way for, for black music. And, uh, and then the other thing too, is that, uh, it's, you know, be, behold the awesome power in the pop world of the drum machine, which mm-hmm. will be, a, which will be a, a, an interesting, uh, discussion late, way later in this episode. So yeah, wink, wink, hint, hint. The 1990s were the fourth golden age of rock. I'm stealing that term from Arturo because I wholeheartedly agree. It's a perfect way to describe the era. Why do we make that argument? Find out soon. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will be basing an entire series of episodes on the topic. 
from Lollapalooza, the good kind of shoegazing, and grunge, all the way through to EDM, Mook Rock, and Napster, will cover the spectrum of a beautiful, incredible span of time where everything changed, at first for the better, and ultimately perhaps for the much worse. What defined the 1990s for you? Let us know at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. All right. So, Chris, let's start tracking Michael Jackson circa 1982 to 86. And I can honestly tell you the, 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 the personal life information and the personal story for Michael during this period is probably more interesting than the music. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes and no, because you're talking about one of the most extraordinary albums uh, ever made. Sure, and, sure, sure. And so, I mean, and so it start. It really starts with the music, and it's very personal uh, to me. Uh, really, without Thriller, uh, you don't get Chris O'Connor as you know him. Uh, no pedophile jokes, please. Please don't. <laughs> anyway, I was about to pop one there. <laughs> pl- pl- please do not. But but seriously, you know, all, all those things aside, without Thriller. Uh, you really don't get Chris O'Connor as you know him. I love this album about as more more than about any album that's ever been out there. Uh, I've probably played it as many times as any other record in my life, as far as I can tell. Uh, maybe only a couple of Beatles albums count. Uh, maybe like U2's Octone Baby. You know, as an adult, there's been a lot of Al Green's Call Me and uh, Built the Spills, Keep It Like a Secret, but... Uh, nothing nothing is like Thriller. I mean, look, it's not only in the rarefied air, it is the rarefied air uh, for yeah. me. And may, maybe for Pop, too. And the only thing that I can say personally for that is uh, Mama Say, Mama Sa, Mama Su, Mama Kusa. You know, the, yeah. uh, the wannabe starting something thing. So uh, I'm, I swear, every time I hear that, I just, oh, I feel it right in my nuts. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. uh, just a wonderful, weird-ass pop song. So, you know, at the end, you know, it's interesting because you, you think about it and we alluded to this in chapter one. Now, this is a guy who with off the wall sold a ton of records. He won several Grammys. He got absolutely gushing critical praise. I mean, Stephen Holden from Rolling Stone gave this uh, uh, really kind of classic, you know, here's how you do actual music criticism review in Rolling Stone. But all of that was not good enough for Michael. Yeah, he you know? he, he, he thought off the walls uh, underperformed actually. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, and so this is an actual uh, quote uh, that you know that is attributed to a uh, a biography that was done on him in 1984, I believe, is uh, part scholarly and part you know sort of unauthorized, but. Uh, so Michael at one point said, and, and this was after, uh, you know, he doesn't feel like he's getting the, the proper airplay. He's not getting on the cover of Rolling Stone. You know, he's not blowing up the way that he thought that he should have blown up after an album like that. And he says, well, I've been told over and over again that black people on the cover of magazines doesn't sell copies. Just wait. Someday those magazines are going to be begging me for an interview. Maybe <laughs> I'll give them one and maybe I won't. And so, I mean, it just underscores the fact that, you know, Michael might've had this gentle kind of goofy uh, persona, but that guy was behind the, that guy was a nasty motherfucker. He was cutthroat. Yeah. And very ambitious. Yeah. Very ambitious, very cutthroat. Uh, 
ridiculously hardworking. Uh, if, if anybody uh, uh, has seen that documentary from 09 after he died, you know, this is it. Uh, that it's, uh, he was just relentless and he, he just was a perfectionist and he just, I mean, he just had it. Um, so anyway, so he's wanting to like basically make a record and he said it of, of just all hits, just wants right. to do nothing. Just, all nine songs are supposed to be huge hits and he's doing that deliberately. And so goes back in the studio with Quincy Jones. And at this point, you know, I mean, there's, there's stories of like Michael hanging out with his pet snake in the, in the <laughs> studio. And, uh, there's all this tension, uh, between them and there's eccentricity going on. And, uh, I guess this is a real argument that, uh, Quincy Jones wanted to shorten the intro to Billy Jean, which, mm. you know, I'm glad Michael won that argument. Because I can't even imagine. I mean, the best part of that song is that bass, uh, yeah. drum bass intro. I mean, which you know, Michael wrote. You know, people have to remember yeah. Michael wasn't just a singer and dancer. That guy could write um, as well. He wasn't prolific, but when he wrote, boy, did he write. So they go into there. So it's you figure you kind of take off where you leave where off the wall takes off. Uh, it doesn't have that like, beautiful electric bottom that off the wall has, but it's, it's definitely more technified and, you know, it's definitely uh, a more driving, more energetic, uh, you know, sort of deliberately, you know, I think it, they wanted that rock edge because again, they were swinging for the fences. And so yeah. you know, they're working with the guys from Toto and they, they brought they, in Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> yeah. They literally brought in like Eddie Van Halen came in for like, what, 20 minutes or you know, like they snuck them in. Yeah. Uh, had him do his thing and then he just like two takes three takes or something and he leaves so it's almost yeah. like he's swooping in swooping out yeah and so and and to michael's credit uh you know they make this they make this great record and again it becomes about as perfect as it gets and he pretty much and we'll we'll talk about this here in a little bit but he wanted to make an album that was nothing but hits he had nine songs which he wrote four of the best four um, and seven of them were top 10 hits Yeah. O over the course of a year and a half. That album comes out in November 82 and it's still, I think like, like the best or the top album in like summer of 1984 or, or right around that time. That's when purple rain hits. And so that, and a couple other things, but I said longest rain I can remember. So, uh, so there you go, uh, with that. So. I guess from there, uh, he releases this album. Correct? Didn't really tour for it. No, he he, never, he he didn't tour for it initially. Um, I mean, he did some shows in '83, um, but he really didn't tour for it. Uh, so it comes out late November of 1982. Um, first single was "The Girl Was Mine," which you know still went to number two, but that means it got off to a slow start. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he does Motown 25, I think in the spring there, you know, they use the, uh, you know, the glittery glove and the, the hat and the moonwalk and right. all that instantly becomes huge, uh, as an icon. There's the Billie Jean video, uh, which you've talked about, and I don't need to go into detail with it. Um, I was, I always thought it was the coolest thing in the world when I was a little kid, like he's, he's making steps and the sidewalk is lighting up, man. 
you know? Yeah. The most electrifying man in music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, uh, yeah. If you know what, if you know what Michael's cooking, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, and I still have that, you know, the, the, the glittering black jacket with the, like the, the white ruffle or the, the pink ruffles. It was pink ruffles. Uh, so a few things about this record. Uh, one thing I learned in the midst of researching this record, because anytime you, I think about Thriller or I talk about Thriller, or I write about Thriller, I always have to go check the RIAA Platinum Record or yeah. Sales Countdown or the yeah. or the um, the chart. And for the longest time, it was this neck and neck race between Thriller and the Eagles' greatest hits. <laughs> and which you know, to be fair, the Eagles that's actually a really great record. I mean, it's yeah. it's the classic like roll up all the stuff that isn't unbearable, put it on one <laughs> record, and it's yeah. awesome. Well, it used to be neck and neck, but now I don't know when they made the change. They now count streams hmm. uh, along with sales. And because of that, uh, now it's like it's the list has gotten really, really strange. Uh, so now the Eagles are at 38 million, uh, you know, the 38 times platinum. Michael's only at 33 times platinum. So, so there's the separation. And it's a good thing he's dead. He'd be pissed off to hear that. Yeah, no shit. Uh, <laughs> and then number three is Hotel California. <laughs> oh my God, the Eagles. Yeah, yeah. Then, the biggest band ever. <laughs> yeah. And so, but the rest here is where I'll tell my favorite story from when I was a kid, and this will give you an idea of just how uh, ridiculously uh, king of the universe. Uh, basically Michael was king of the ghetto, uh, at this point. And just, he, he basically was, uh, he was deified. And so I'm in fourth grade and we have a annual talent show thing. And at the end of this, this is like February or March of 1984. They say at the end, we have a very special guest here to perform <laughs> for you. And it was a it was a Michael Jackson impersonator who was uh, he was a high school kid he was going to high school like at Fowler which is the high school across uh, the way from where I was in Syracuse and lo and behold this kid comes out dressed in the the Billie Jean outfit starts doing the routine all that place exploded like all <laughs> those little kids and especially all the little girls. Are just losing their shit. Just they scream. believed it really was Michael Jackson. They, they believed it was Michael. They start screaming, and you got like they're falling out in the aisles, and they're just you know doing the like the you know the crying and the you know the the the, the you know the, the hands in the mouth type of thing, yeah, you know. And so this kid gets done. He goes backstage, and there was a bum rush to to the <laughs> to the backstage door. Of all these like little, you know, these little black girls just going absolutely out of their friggin' minds. And to this day, I still think, man, that, that guy, that, that kid must have just been scared out of his mind. <laughs> he gets off stage and all of a sudden there's going to be this rampage. And so I get this picture of him in that outfit, in the makeup, like just leaving out the back door and just running down Midland 
<laughs> Midland <laughs> Avenue. I'm <laughs> just running for two miles just to get away from this torrent of these little girls that were going to tear his clothes up. So yeah. anyway, so that just gives you an idea of just the, the how beholden uh, we were to Michael back then. It was well, and, and, and that's, that's just insane pressure yes. right there. And I mean, that's pressure for a Michael Jackson impersonator. <laughs> the, the, the real Michael Jackson had some serious fucking pressure. Yeah. Um, especially from the record industry. He got pressure from the tabloid media. Cause this is when like Michael's getting on, you know, uh, the national Enquirer for all his quirks and eccentricities. Yeah. You know, bubbles, the chimp and uh, yeah. <laughs> the oxygen chamber and yeah. you know, all that, all the famous stuff. So that all starts to hit. And so, at this point, he's not really getting flack for it. It's more just sort of, isn't this funny or isn't this fascinating? And right. like, like what, you know, what, is, is this guy really human? And then, yeah. of course, you know, there's the, you know, he went to the Oscars one year. I think it was either the Oscars or the Grammys with Brooke Shields as a date. Yeah. And so yeah. there was all this speculation. And uh, supposedly, I guess he was, he dated Tatum O'Neill for a little while. And, mm-hmm. and again, maybe well, this was all beard stuff, you know. Yeah, I think it's beard <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and again, you know, like in doing my research for the last episode, there's speculation that Joe Jackson had him chemically castrated so he could keep his voice high. Jesus, I mean, and knowing how fucked up the the stuff we know about the Jacksons is public, that wouldn't that one wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, so you have this pressure, and and this stuff is coming out. And speaking of family, <laughs> yeah, speaking speaking of family, so this so not only do you have like the paparazzi and the national choir. And, you know, he's, you know, basically at this point, the New York tabloids are just obsessed with him and, you know, all of his moves and, you know, and, you know, just some of the, some of the stuff that that's uh, going, going on and getting out there. And obviously, you know, the glove and the jackets, this is where he starts wearing like his fashion gets truly ridiculous. Yeah. That the funny part about, you know, just off the, off the cuff, is you know you, you everybody most people listening to this podcast know the thriller video without having to think too hard where he wears that red leather uh outfit with you know this sort of the when he's doing the the dance routine and he's got that gorgeous red leather and black uh zipper thing going on yeah uh, that's how this guy was dressing like he would like leave his house that was he that's he was the glittery stuff the leather stuff i mean the you know the the, the shades that you could see from outer space, you know, because of the glare. Dude, he, he went. He went to visit Ronald Reagan in the White House in 1984, wearing all glitter. Yep. Yeah, and yeah, the glove, and yeah, and all that. So the the eccentricity start coming out, and you know, Michael is is one of these uh, cases, and you know, you've seen this, and you know, him and Elvis were kind of the same. That if you've got these, uh, if you've got these really sensitive uh, guys and eccentric talents that yeah uh, that grew up uh not so great uh maybe the last thing that you should give a a mentally ill really sensitive uh eccentric genius artist is money yeah <laughs> you know because 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 mo- mo- money definitely put a change in, in in michael but yeah we really want to talk about that this thing uh during this period that uh you would you got the sense that yeah that they went from a being a really unified uh, family 
the Jacksons I'm talking about now, Yeah. Uh, in the uh, early 70s. And then as Michael started to get more of the press, maybe there was a growing resentment. Jermaine had a lot of success in the 70s and early 80s, but the rest of them fell off the map. And so basically starting from this period, uh, for all of the family members except Janet, who obviously was very successful, uh, Michael became the bank. And uh, to a point where it got really twisted, and we're going to do it this way. So we're eventually going to talk here in a few minutes. We're going to talk about the ill-fated, in the most hilarious way, the uh, the victory tour that Michael <laughs> did with his brothers. You know, all of them. It was the the only time that this, all six of them performed together at the same time. Uh, but uh, let me give you a precursor to this. So, uh, 2012 Vanity Fair article, uh, which is has an excerpt from the book, basically uh, detailing the behavior of the family and the battles where you had one side that was with the mom and the other side that was against the mom uh, and, and how they acted. Uh, get a hold of this. And I want to read this whole thing because it's fascinating and it's, it's jaw dropping. Uh, so here we go. Uh, Ronald Williams of talent Ex- executive services a private security company that dispatched a team to Michael Jackson's rented chateau in Holmby Hills on the night of his death, tells Sullivan that hours after Jackson died, Latoya Jackson, the sister, and her boyfriend, Jeffrey Phillips, arrived at the house demanding to be admitted. We're family and we should have access to the house, they reportedly said. Sullivan reports that mother Catherine Jackson also arrived that night and entered the house where she telephoned Grace Rwamba, the recently terminated longtime nanny to Michael's children. According to Rwamba, Catherine said, Grace, the children are crying. They're asking about you. They can't believe their father died. Grace, can you remember where Michael used to hide the cash in the house? I'm here. Where can it be? Rwamba described Michael's standard practice of hiding his cash in plastic garb in black cap plastic garbage bags and under the carpets. Oh my Talon described seeing Latoya and her boyfriend loading pla- black plastic garbage bags into duffel bags and placing them in the garage. Latoya would insist that nearly all of Michael's money was gone by the time she arrived at the Holmby Hills house. Jesus. Uh, the next morning, Janet Jackson arrived with a moving van and demanded to be admitted. A few hours later, the truck exited through the front gate with Jeffrey Phillips at the wheel. Catherine Jackson and her daughters made it clear that they wouldn't be leaving anytime soon. They camped out for most of a week, Williams tells Sullivan, leaving and returning whenever they felt like it. So basically, they basically, these three ladies, they hijacked Michael's house and they stole his money. Fucking jackals, man. There's like a yeah, family of jackals. Then this is like r- right after he died. So this just kind yeah. of gives you an indication of how screwed up it all became. Now, that's the sisters. Now, let's go back to the brothers. And, <laughs> and so this is 1984. And so uh, they come up with this idea that this is the perfect opportunity to uh, capitalize on the Jacksons' uh, brand. Yeah. And so they're going to come up. They, they record this album called... I.E. Capitalize on Michael. Yes, yes. <laughs> at, at, at this point, this basically might as well just be uh, Michael and his sorry-ass brothers on a, on a world, on a, 
American tour, supposed to be a world tour. And so the Victory Tour, now they had done this album called Victory uh, to sort of promote this this tour. Uh, It's got songs from all six brothers. Uh, Needless to say, it's terrible with the exception (laughs) of... With the exception of one of the Michael songs, <laughs> you know, My- Michael's uh, "State of Shock" is actually a really great song. Strange but true, people remember this. He did this with Mick Jagger. He originally was recording it with Freddie Mercury of Queen. Yeah, which... well, My- Michael was a huge Queen fan. Oh yeah, I can imagine. You know, and and like you know, Freddie and Michael probably dug each other because of how theatrical they both were. Yeah, uh, but something fell through, and then so Jagger swooped in and did it. So. Now they're going to start the Victory Tour with no songs from Victory ever <laughs> making the playlist. It's and, it's and mo- the vast majority of the songs on the set list were Michael Jackson songs. Yeah, it was it was so- basically Michael songs from Off the Wall and Thriller plus like a a, a medley of uh, Jermaine Jackson songs uh, for like <laughs> three or four. He got a medley, uh, and then maybe they like yeah, and they did a medley of the Jackson Five shit because you know people wanted to go see that so. So this is going to be a uh, big, huge stadium tour. They're going to play all the football stadiums and all, all you know, all the big stadiums. The bankrollers of this thing, uh, they had original promoters, and that fell through, and there was a lot of consternation. So in comes the Sullivan family uh, of uh, Patriots ownership fame. These are the establishing owners of the Patriots, and you know the, the junior. The, uh, the young Sullivan figures, okay, this is my opportunity to really establish myself as a concert promoter. And so he advances $37 million to the brothers. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, uh, and so and not only that, but I think he had to put out like a second mortgage on the stadium. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> and so all of this. And so, so you get that. So there's that. So you're so you're basically Michael kind of tagging the sorry ass brothers along on this tour, uh, and they're trying to do all this. Now, in the midst of this, the ultimate promoter of this tour, strange but true, is Don King. <laughs> what <Yes>. a country! <laughs> yeah, what a yeah, yeah, yeah. What a country! Or you know, uh, only in America. Only uh, in America. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, we are talking about that Don King, the boxing Don King. Uh, and so he's out there promoting it like crazy. They have this bloated budget. Uh, my favorite thing is they actually had somebody called an ambiance director uh, (laughs) on, on payroll. And, and so, and then at this point too, there's also, you know, Michael is not particularly happy with his brothers anyway, because it's like, okay, so I have to do all this bullshit. So I get money in your pockets. And so when he's on the road, you know, he's like, they're like on the back of the bus and he's on the front of the bus hanging out with like Emmanuel Lewis, uh, (laughs) maybe a precursor to things to come. Uh, So they go through all this and they made their money, but this is a tour that fizzled as it went along that to the point where they were canceling shows, they weren't. You know, they didn't sell any tickets like they had to cancel Toronto because literally they had 50,000 tickets that they weren't selling. Uh, the other problem with it was, is that it was probably a Don King thing. They were going to sell the tickets through lottery only. Mm. And so that pissed off a lot of fans, pissed off a lot of fans, uh, got a letter from an 11 year old girl saying, I can't go see Michael. It's because yeah. not only. 
they were selling the tickets for 30 bucks, which at the time was, you know, enormous, but you could only go through a lottery and you could only buy it in groups of four. Yeah. And so who do you think was buying the tickets? White people. (laughs) Lots of white people. Yeah. And so Michael was so embarrassed. He gave all his money to UNICEF (laughs) and a couple (laughs) other charities. So now there's all this. And again, so they're not selling all of this. Uh, They're not selling out. And it's a disaster, uh, such a disaster that the Patriots went broke and had to sell the team to Victor Kayyem in a couple of years, which (laughs) I I think is funny. Uh, And then the and then sort of the the cool the 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 cherry on the Sunday is Don King uh, complaint, basically, you know, accusing Michael because they wanted to do a European wing. And, yeah. and Michael said no way. And yeah, Michael was like, "The hell with the hell with these guys." And I'm yeah. not, I'm not doing this anymore. I mean, look, you know, I mean, basically, he put his foot down and said, "I'm not going to be a meal ticket," which right. brought this extraordinary quote from Don King. Which, uh, do you mind if I read this, uh, Arthur? Yeah, um, be careful, and and I recommend uh, don't say the N word. Just say N word. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I. Yeah. This is. Uh, and, you know, which, by the way, Don King, for being a, uh, a black man who uh, spent some time in prison for manslaughter, uh, was really fond of the N-word uh, yeah. in, in very vulgar ways. I mean, it's not yeah. like it's not like the Tarantino thing where it was just sort of artistic. No, in, in Don King's way, it was like, did he really hate black people this much? Um, <laughs> so here's this quote where he's pissed off at Michael. He says, quote, there's no way Michael should be as big as he is and treat his family the way he does. He feels his father done him wrong. His father may have done some wrong, but he also had to do a whole lot right. What's Michael got to realize is he's a cool guy. He's one of the megastars of the world, but he's still going to be a N megastar. Mm. He must accept that. Not only must he understand that, he's got to accept it and demonstrate that he wants to be a cool guy. Why? To show that an N can do it. <laughs> so, so in other words, basically, yeah. you got to go out and put on a minstrelsy show for the white folk. Um, and, and Michael was so pissed off that he really came really close to suing Don King yeah, for slander. Yeah, he was going to um, hit him with a defamation suit and his lawyer had to talk him out of it. So yeah. So anyway, so there's this craziness is going on and it, I guess in a way it's, it's definitely in terms of the family and in terms of the pressure and in terms of um, the alienation, this definitely did set up uh, uh, the rest of his life. So, yeah, like, like I said, I, I'll, like I told you earlier, Chris, like I'll always argue that, you know, the musically Prince, his discography is superior, but when it comes to personal and family drama, no one beats Michael Jackson. Yeah. And, and look, well, and that, well, that's the thing, you know, I, I think that there's, yeah, nobody beats Michael Jackson. I mean, look, I think ultimately Prince has the funnier stories because he was so eccentric yeah. or he, or he at least uh, was a very good put on artist, you know, yeah. I mean, who knew, who yeah. knew what was really going on? Either he was that eccentric. He just like to screw with people. Uh, yeah. Michael was just nuts and yeah. had a lot of nuttiness going around. Uh, going around yeah. with him. And so, and again, you know, during this period, you know, it, there's also the other destruction, which is more famous. Uh, it's, a, it's during this period that he finds out that he has uh, vitiligo. Uh, or is it vitiligo? Uh, no, I, I've always heard it as vitiligo. Vitiligo? Uh, okay. Yes. 
And this is the skin condition that causes uh, folks to lose pigment. And so you end up with blotchy skin with, with some of it being dark black, some of it being white, some of it being pink, all of this. He starts to suffer from this. Um, it's a real struggle. And so at first he's doing sort of extreme makeup jobs. And then at some point he is turned on to the idea that he should bleach his skin. And so this is where the, uh, you know, the unfair, uh, Michael would rather be white thing comes from. And yeah. so this but, starts, but the thing is he got really carried away with the skin treatments though. Oh yeah, he did. I mean, well, like everything else, I mean, you know, Michael is like the poster child for body dysmorphia. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, we really didn't have much awareness of that until Michael started to go overboard. Now, yeah. he said in an interview at some point, and I can't remember when, it might have been the 90s, that he had only had two nose jobs. Um, Bullshit. Which, which on <laughs> theory is plausible. It is possible that they, the nose job gets so screwed up that the cartilage eats itself. Uh, but no way, uh, you know, between what he had the chin implant, he had, um, what was some of the other crazy stuff? He had the, the wig that was sewn into his hair, but there's a reason yeah. for that. Um, and then just all the other, like the nose, he, he, he basically, he was so bad that by the time he was dead, he had, um, he had a prosthetic tip. You know, like he, he literally had a hole in his nose. So, Ugh. so that's, so that's this uh, thing. And then I didn't know this until I was researching this, that, um, famously, uh, this is when the Pepsi commercial thing happened. Yeah. So, uh, for the four or five uh, of the people in America that don't know this story, uh, so Michael was doing a going to Pepsi ended up being the, uh, the, uh, the sponsor of that victory tour. So they're going to do two commercials. One of them calls for Michael to rush, come through a pyro thing. It's like, it's going to be this um, kind of sparkly uh, entrance where he emerges from the, the fire or the sparkles onto the stage. Well, during one of the takes, uh, he's about to go through it. And, uh, the flame catches his jerry curl, burns off top of his head. Mm. Uh, you ever seen the video? No. Yeah, there's video. If you go look it up on YouTube, they've got the video of it where they he's writhing in pain. He goes down. They fire extinguishes his head, and oh my goodness! I mean, it was it was just like a creature from the black lagoon, like just bubbly, pink, purple. I mean, it was it was bad. Oh. It was. Basically, it, it might've been a first degree burn. Um, wow. And so uh, here is where uh, most uh, of his friends and associates think that his dependence on morphine starts. Hmm. Essentially, you know, pills, morphine, uh, and Demerol, and, and eventually what became the fucked up stuff that killed him. Uh, that's where it, um, you know, that's basically where it starts. What I didn't know was that they had, an, this came from the Victory Tour. They had another corporate sponsor. Can't remember off the top of my head which one it was. Uh, but Don King forced this idea that they would, uh, do Pepsi would sponsor the tour. They would ultimately would get less money, 
but as part of it, they were going to do these two commercials. And so you can basically say that Don King manipulating the Jacksons on that victory tour uh, approximately caused uh, Michael to be in the situation to have the top of his head burned off and his life ruined. So basically Don King is the one who put Michael in the Pepsi commercial? Basically, yeah. That yeah, it was there was it was Don King that kind of set that whole thing up. So go mm-hmm. figure. Uh, one other thing to mention here too, I know we're kind of covering eighty two, eighty six. This is when uh, Michael pulls one of the great uh, business tricks or business feats of any uh, artist in history. Yeah, and well, and does it in a very dubious way. So you know, uh, he becomes friends with Paul McCartney during this period. You know, they did say say say, and the girl was mine and all this other stuff. And so uh, he's getting financial advice from McCartney in a conversation and said, dude, you know, you want to, you want to get rich, you go buy publishing rights, you know, you, mm-hmm. you know, you invest in that and it's, it's through the publishing that you make your money. So lo and behold, uh, capital or uh, EMI or whoever it was put uh, the Beatles uh, publish publishing catalog up for sale or auction and Michael swoops in and outbids McCartney for <laughs> McCartney's Beatles publishing. Yeah, McCartney was angry at him forever after yeah, that. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that, that, that was, was the end of their relationship. And it should have been because I I need to find a number on it. But how much do you think that shit was worth when Michael yeah. died? That, that Basically, that was his only, like, asset that wasn't that <laughs> you yeah. know that basically that was that was the only thing that was propping him up because at that point and you know, everything else was screwed up but so that's that's really the, the michael story through this and again you know i, I have my personal connection and it's very sad but i'll still st- stick up for michael because again the artiness the artisticness the um the originality the, the artistry uh, the art <laughs> artisticness or artistry. Hey, Michael is so unusual. He gets artisticness. On this episode, the curmudgeons provided the second installment of our thrilling survey of the eerily parallel careers of Prince and Michael Jackson. For the next episode, join us as we bring you chapter three of the Prince versus Michael Jackson saga. Michael tries to live up to the massive expectations heaped on him after the colossal success of Thriller and releases Bad. Does Bad measure up? Is it anywhere near as good? Plus, Michael starts to crack from excessive drug use and the intensity of tabloid media pressure. And he starts to get a little more publicly brazen with his, shall we say, fondness for children. Prince, on the other hand, continues to overwhelm people with his prolificacy. You have Sign of the Times, his most personal artistic statement and one of the greatest albums ever made, and the soundtrack to Batman, a multi-platinum blockbuster and his second biggest selling album. You also have Love Sexy and the not-so-blockbuster soundtrack to Graffiti Bridge. Through this all, the curmudgeons will ponder if Prince actually surpassed Michael by the end of the 1980s. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. Well, 
Now, Michael, during this period that we've just described, obviously had a lot of drama and a lot of weirdness going on. Uh, <laughs> so what did Prince have going on during this period? Uh, a lot, a lot of work. Yes. Hardest working man in show business. Yes, the yeah. hardest working man uh, in show business. But, you know, it, it it's not like he wasn't eccentric and weird as hell himself. Yeah, I mean, but things, Prince's eccentricity, there was a self-conscious, self-knowing eccentricity. Like there yeah. was a sense that he was putting you on with his eccentricity, you know? And uh, yeah, he, he was eccentric, but he also, I mean, yeah, he was. Of course, he's an artist. Most artists are. But there was a big put on with Prince as well. You know, he knew what he was doing. You know, a, a lot of what he did was very planned out. Uh, not just the music, but his pre- the present his presentation of himself, you know, and, and his, the, the frilly shirts, the pompadour hair, like you know, Little Richard meets Jimi Hendrix, basically was his look <laughs> around this period. You know, mm-hmm. anyway, but 1982 to 86, thus begins, I, I would say, the most fecund period <laughs> of Prince's <laughs> career, uh, where he just did nonstop recording, nonstop releasing, nonstop touring. He was an absolute machine during this period when he wasn't producing all-time, timelessly classic albums that defined a generation and beyond. He was playing sold-out shows all over the world. When he wasn't doing that, he was starring in Hollywood films. <laughs> when he wasn't doing that, he was fending off and often picking from an infinite line of women who had made him one of pop music's greatest sex symbols. When he wasn't having sex with every woman imaginable, he was, uh, when he wasn't doing that, he was recording and releasing albums that weren't always up to par with his greatest work, but they always had at least three or four absolutely stunning songs. Yeah, which you know. pretty much kind of became an M.O. Uh, for him. I mean, he would yeah. he would hit it out of the park once in a while. Uh, yeah. you know, like pretty much, what, what would you say, like every four years, it seemed. Every like. four or five years. Yeah. You, oh, yeah. my God, it's one of the best albums ever. <laughs> yeah, but, in, but in, then in between, it would be like a, like a couple of brilliant singles mixed in with like, man. Yeah, you know, exactly. So. Now, th- this shit all starts with 1999, which was released in October 1982. This was a blockbuster album when it came out, producing three songs that made the top 20 of the Billboard pop chart, two of which hit top 10. The album itself peaked at number nine on the Billboard album chart. I think the only reason it peaked at number nine is because it was a double album. Yeah. Back then, it was a double you know, on CD, it was a single CD, but on vinyl, it was a double. Yeah, right? which made it a little more a little pricier. Mm-hmm. Anyway, beyond the commercial success, though, 1999 was really an artistic triumph and a big breakthrough for Prince. It was epic in length. It was ambitious in scope. It was sweeping in musical panorama. Um, the minimalist electro funk of the previous groundbreaking albums, Dirty Mind and Controversy, that sound got beefed up for mainstream dance floors with full rock band arrangements and, of course, Prince's very own virtuoso guitar playing. Um, the album is known for its dance funk workouts that push the nine minute barrier. Mm-hmm. A lot of long songs on this album. Yes. But it's the pop songcraft that really pushed it over the edge 
to like all time classic status. Mm-hmm. Um, the insanely catchy and funky title track, 1999. Oh, it's one of the in- great, one of the greatest singles of all time. Yeah, inexplicably made it only to number twelve on the pop charts. Yeah, I, which, I don't, I don't get that. Which is weird, considering that this like has gone on to become one of his signature songs. You know, yeah. game, one of his signature songs. I, I think he played that song on every single show he ever did. Like, he yeah, played, I was going to say, was never a Prince song without a Prince concert without nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, you got to give the people what they want. You know, yeah, you know, another one of his signature songs was the achingly beautiful and surprisingly tender little red corvette oh yeah which was uh, his biggest hit to date peaking at number six in the pop charts and more importantly this was this song was uh it peaked at number six in 1983 this was the big crossover dent into the pop and rock audience yes prince mm-hmm you know, and it wasn't until doing research for this episode that I found out that Delirious, which is this this orgasmic nugget of synth pop and one of my favorite songs on the album, was actually a huge hit, peaking at number eight on the pop charts. I didn't know that yeah. until I did the research for this. Hmm. You know, and I love I love Delirious, one of my favorite songs on the album. Yeah, no, this. Um, well, that album's almost perfect. I mean, there's just like one great song and one great workout after another. So yeah. Yeah, it really is. And the test of time, the greatest test for any body of work when it comes to art, has been very, very kind to this album. Uh, Back in 2004, the Rolling Stone album guide said, quote, 1999 may be Prince's most influential album. Its synth and drum machine heavy arrangements codified the Minneapolis sound that loomed over mid-1980s R&B and pop not to mention the next two decades worth of electro, house, and techno. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it's also worth mentioning that this is the debut of Wendy and Lisa, yep. uh, who uh, they, they, it's interesting because, you know, Prince had that history afterwards of like the two hot dancers on either yeah. side of him and all that. Mm-hmm. But, but those girls were like, actually talented and keyboard guitar player yeah yeah they they contributed to uh the uh arrangements on that i mean wendy malvone is especially just prolific and has had a tremendous career uh and uh coincidentally worth mentioning because i'm i'm envious as a as a man that they were a couple yeah the two of them yeah they were they were a they were a gay couple while they were in prince's band and yep. and they were a couple for a long time, actually. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. And and but anyway, so that was kind of groundbreaking as well. But uh, but anyway, worth worth yeah. mentioning. This is the beginning of the like literally Prince and the Revolution. So yeah, totally. Um, Chris, your favorite publication, Pitchfork. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, joking. We're, yeah, we're not yeah, pitchfork. pitchfork. Yeah, pit, pit, pitchfork. If you ever want to uh, confirm that you actually are a good writer, go read Pitchfork. And that, 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 <laughs> it'll that, make that, you feel good about your own writing. Yeah, it'll be. A, it, it's a wonderful ego boost, folks. Anyway, yeah. uh, after Prince died in 2016, Pitchfork wrote like a retro retrospective review of 1999, and it said, "Quote: By balancing synth funk explorations, taut pop construction." genre bending and the proto-nuclear fallout of lust 1999 still sounds like a landmark release in 2016 end quote 
The article further praised Prince's singular, quote, singular vision and willingness to indulge his curiosities for creating an apocalypse anticipating album that perhaps paradoxically was built to last for decades and even centuries to come. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, in 2020, Rolling Stone magazine ranked it number 130 on its list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Now, this list wasn't compiled by the previous Rolling Stone 500 contributors who were mostly old, white, male music journalists. Yeah. Yeah. Artists and record industry folks swooning for their beloved 1960s and 70s. Yeah. This most recent list had a healthy balance of men and women, a more eclectic variety of ethnic groups represented, and an inclusion of younger generation music industry insiders. Yeah. Uh, Raekwon from Wu-Tang fame was, uh, uh, was one of the judges, one of the voters. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. I like Raekwon. Lastly, for 1999... Like I said, this album did for Prince what Off the Wall did for Michael Jackson. Uh, it blew him up huge for a mainstream pop crossover audience. It was another severe dent in MTV's color barrier, as we mentioned earlier, when it came to airplay for videos by black by black artists. And it set him up for a super duper pop culture explosion with the next album. Now, here's why I'm going to stick the stick the needle on your side, Chris. What separates this from off the wall? The test of time has also, at least in this curmudgeon's opinion, revealed in 1999, I think, to be a more influential, more original, more innovative, funkier, sweatier, sexier, better composed and structured album, all making it, in my opinion, a much better album than its wacko jacko counterpart. Sorry to say. Oh, them's fighting words. Um, yes, they are. Well, I, I really think 1999 is a better album. I really well, think so. Well, you know, in, in a way, it's kind of like uh, comparing an apple to an orange uh, because um, Quincy and Michael were kind of making a statement of, you know, we're going to uh, take the last 10 years of black music and we're going to make it into – its own creation. So it's kind of like a Frankenstein monster record. Um, and uh, I, I think it's better. I think it's, uh, it's tighter. It's more tuneful uh, across the board. Yeah. Across the board. Um, yeah. Is it funkier? No. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously uh, there's, there's a few, um, there's a few workouts, like some of those nine minute things, which are just, you know, uh, sensational. Uh, this is also, uh, it's, it's interesting because I would say that Michael's stuff is more influenced by the clubs and by, uh, sort of the poppy R and B going on. Yeah. I call it the greatest disco record ever made, but calling it disco is kind of an insult. Uh, mm -hmm. it was its own kind of soul. And again, it was like a roll up of 10 years of black soul and R&B music, yeah. uh, just sort of in forming this new pop thing. And, and nobody had ever sung like Michael before. And so Michael had three years on Prince. Now Prince was a pretty amazing singer too, and a pretty influential singer, not as much as Michael. Uh, is, I, I would say he was a more influential musician. Oh yeah. I mean, no question. Uh, I mean, that's a fair statement. He, he wasn't a bigger star. Uh, he wasn't a more influential singer. And like I said, I don't think, uh, 
Prince is more pro- prolific, but you know, I don't think that he's got a song as good as Working Day and Night. I don't. Think, I don't think Michael has got a song as good as When Doves Cry. No, I don't no, think no. Michael has a single song as good as that. I know. I and I would disagree. I think that you know Michael's got Working Day and Night. He's got Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Uh, and he's got Billy Jean and want to be starting something. And oh. Prince has got Purple Rain. He's got uh, Let's Go Crazy. He's got yeah. Raspberry Beret. He's got Kiss. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, <laughs> the, the only song of the ones that you just named that I would say are are arguably is better than any of those Michael songs is Kiss. When doves cry, uh, when, I don't. Think, I don't. I don't think Michael's ever had a song with that depth. Yeah, well, well, it it depends. I mean, it depends on how you're defining the depth. I mean, Michael, I mean, Thriller is a pretty dark record because it's, you know, it's about paranoia. It's about competition. It's about, um, uh, in some ways, it's, you know, combating violence and dark forces. You know, I, I mean, granted, it's weird, but, you know, Wanna Be Starting Something has that thing about you being a vegetable and they be eating you. Uh <laughs> You know, and stuff like that. But it's, um, I don't know. I mean, Michael, I think, was a little bit better than people gave him credit for uh, on that. But, yeah, look, When Doves Cry, uh, I love it. I, you know, I, I think it's a marvelous, marvelous, marvelous song. Uh, but it ain't Billie Jean, and it ain't Working Day and Night. Um, Lyrically, it's better than both of those songs. Eh, who cares? Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, and music it's, it's, and musically, musically, it's a little more innovative, I think. Well, I mean, the thing about well, uh, the thing that um, I think kind of blew away the critics at the time was that it had no bass. But who cares? Yeah. Uh, literally, yeah. th- literally has no bass. But yeah, it doesn't need a bass. <laughs> yeah, and look, you know, Prince is. I will say this as a musician, uh, absolute innovator of keyboards and you know keyboard use. You know, think about the stuff he did on Dirty Mind. Think about the keyboard riff on 1999. Think about the synth work and keyboard work on uh, When Doves Cry. So, yeah, I mean, he, he absolutely has that. But uh, his, like, Michael was king of the bass lines. Uh, Michael, throughout his entire career, extending into bad and dangerous, that guy could write badass fucking bass lines. Uh, Think about the baseline to, again, there's Working Day and Night. There's uh, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. There's Billie Jean, which has one of the great baselines ever. Uh, and just, just across the board, I mean, it's just like really, he was a really solid uh, funk. You know, he had he had a funk thing going to him. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously Prince was the guitarist. I mean, so yeah, you compare him in terms of musicianship and all of that. And, you know, I'm, I'm picturing like you have like a left column, right hand kind of checkbox column. Yeah. And what can you say? Singer, Michael, uh, guitarist, Prince, uh, bass guy, uh, Michael. Keyboard. Lyricist, lyric, keyboards, Prince, lyricist, Prince. Well, yeah. 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 I mean, again, you know, Michael, Michael's lyrics were eccentric. Uh, I'll, I'll give him that. But uh, yeah, Prince, uh, Prince had some great songs, like some of his love songs. Like, you know, we'll get into it next episode, but uh, uh, some of the lyrical stuff on Sign of the Times is just astonishing. Oh, yeah. Sign so, of the Times may be his best album. 
like arguably his best album. Yeah. Maybe not objectively, but you can make an argument for it. Yeah, no, I would say that, yeah. you know, it's it's really between Sign of the Times, Purple Rain, and Dirty Mind. I mean, those are the those are the top three. Let's let's stick to the 1982-86. Speaking well, yes. of Purple Rain, speaking of Purple Rain, now I'll get to the album and the epical year of 1984, where Prince takes over the world, matches Michael Jackson for pop culture relevance, becomes a Hollywood star, and releases a work, I, I, I think and no one can argue, a work of enduring and unmatched brilliance. Mm-hmm. Um, Purple Rain, in, released in 84, was and continues to be for ensuing generations of musicians, artists, and super fans like myself, an inspirational, awe-inspiring magpie tour de force of funk, soul, R&B, rock, synth pop, electronica, soul balladry, and yeah. most most important of all, pop songwriting genius. Yeah, and, and um, it does it in nine songs. It basically, in nine songs, And that's yeah. the thing. Thriller and Purple Rain are both nine-song records. And so yeah. for them to accomplish as much as they did, yeah. No, it's yeah. pretty, pretty damn impressive. Yeah, and like you said, accomplishment. Prince manages to accomplish the near impossible expansion of the already diverse stylings of 1999 by with purple rain crafting this kind of like a virtuosic explosion of eclecticism and inspired song craft while at the same time, like you just said, delivering it in a really rather short, concise, neatly packaged cassette ready album. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but you can fit on one like a forty in a forty-five minute side yeah. of a uh, of a ninety-minute mm-hmm. cassette. Yeah, um, it was his first Billboard number one album. It also went top ten in at least ten other countries. It produced two number one songs in the pop chart. Why it didn't produce more? I don't know. Yeah, seriously. Um, the dance rock masher, "Let's Go Crazy," and as we spoke about, "When Doves Cry," which is basically this anthemic synth pop orgy of songcraft melody and pop hooks that I think still ranks as uh, one of Prince's signature songs and one of the greatest and most lyrically deep musical compositions of all time in any genre of music. That's saying a lot, but it's damn true. Um, Inexplicably, the title track, Purple Rain, like one of the most heartbreaking breakup ballads ever recorded. Yeah. Like a a Hendrix-style lyrical, really lyrical guitar solo went only as high as number two yeah, in the pop charts. Like, yeah. what the hell kept Purple Rain, the song, from being number one? Yeah, I was going to say, that's about as epic as it gets. And uh, also worth noting that, that um, the basic track for that was recorded uh, during a live performance in, Minneapolis, in a yeah. Minneapolis club yeah. in 1983. It was the first time they played it uh, in yeah. the show. And, and that's actually the basis for, uh, the, that's the, the basic track. Yeah, I know. It's it's incredible. Um, In any case, Purple Rain just endures as the haha purple standard (laughs) for uh, R&B pop rock crossovers and anything resembling a pop cultural milestone while at the same time being this major artistic statement of enduring and timeless quality, um, combining and expressing both the personal and the universal in a way that few have matched since. Um, remember that Rolling Stone list of the 500 greatest albums of all time that I mentioned earlier? Yeah, Purple Rain's in like the top 50, isn't it? 
And that same list, Thriller, came in at number 12. Purple Rain, number eight. Enough said. Yeah, well, I mean, come on. I mean, on a list of 500, I mean, come on. You're only talking like a couple of percent, like basically one percentage point away from each other. Uh, yeah. But no, I, well, I personally think that's bullshit. Uh, off the, Thr- Thriller ranked higher than Off the Wall, I believe on that. Yeah, Off the Wall was like in the 30s or 40s or something like that. Which is nuts because that belongs in the top five. Um, that's one of the greatest albums ever made. And definitely belong it, that it is, but but not top five greatest albums. Definitely yeah. not. I don't I don't put off the wall that high. Yeah, and then, anyway, uh, and, then sign, anyway. and then sign of the times belonged ahead of Purple Rain. So you know. Anyway. Well, I mean Purple Rain for pop culture cultural impact should be ranked higher. But yeah, yeah. I personally like Sign of the Times more, but I'll get to that next episode. There you However, go. Prince's domination didn't stop there though. While Michael Jackson produced truly groundbreaking and culturally transformative videos for MTV off the heels of Thriller, Prince one-upped him, in a sense, by going straight to Hollywood. Yes, yes, he (laughs) did. starring in a film very, very closely based on his life growing up in Minneapolis and in a broken home and trying to make it in the really competitive Minneapolis music scene. Uh, This movie, of course, was... Purple Rain. Uh, it was recorded. It was not recorded. It was filmed on a modest budget of seven million dollars. The movie grossed seventy million worldwide, uh, qualifying it as a box office smash. However, the reviews were moderate at best. <laughs> the yeah. acting, primarily, and Prince's acting, primarily, was harshly criticized and it's standing as a pop culture zeitgeist moment has kind of endured more than it's standing as any kind of quality film. My 40 something year old self gave this film a retrospective viewing not too long ago. And it really isn't that bad at all. Um, First of all, no, Prince is not the best of actors, but <laughs> he does have a unique sexually charged charisma that kind of makes it impossible to take your eyes off of him. And yes, I say this as a heterosexual male. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Second, don't, yeah don't, don't, don't tell your wife. <laughs> yeah. Second, it's clear that the director of this film, Albert Magnoli, um, was very much influenced by legendary British art film director, Nicholas Roeg. Uh, there are lots of Roeg's uh, patented manic cross-cutting of scenes with unseen characters, dialogue peppered on top, creating uh, like both a, a disorienting feeling for the viewer as well as context for the promise of excitement to come. Of course, this was as far as Magnoli went in his art film ambitions as this is, after all, the same guy who went on to direct Tango and Cash. So, <laughs> hey, 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 leave Tango and Cash alone, man. That's that's a wonderful, terrible movie. Well, anyway, are we done yet with Prince? No, because just two weeks after the Purple Rain tour ended in the spring of 1985, and let me make a, a little segue, a little side point here. Um, you've told me, Chris, many times that uh, when you were nine years old, your dad took you to see 
Prince at the Carrier Dome in Syracuse, New York. Yes, that was my first. That was my first concert ever. I can tell you that show took place in, on March thirty-first. Oh, oh, March thirtieth. Thirtieth. I know. I know. It's. I think it's thirtieth because I, that show in its entirety is on YouTube. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. You can, uh, you, go on YouTube. You will find that that show was filmed professionally shot for a concert film. Yeah. And uh, it went straight to video. But anyway, you can find that show on YouTube, the show you went to with your dad. It's there. So yeah, no, you, it, you, you might be looking it up now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am, uh, as we speak, I am, uh, I am looking yeah. this up. Just look up Prince Syracuse 1985. It's all you need to know. Yeah. I, I remember being at that show and it was awesome. Yes, it was. Uh, yes, it was on March thirtieth. Yes. Yep. And March thirtieth. Yep. Okay. Anyway. Yep. Anyway, two weeks after Purple Rain, the tour ended. Prince released "Around the World in a Day," which, for the most part, took his patented R and B funk rock pop hybrid and infused it with a heavy dose of nineteen sixties style psychedelia. Now, this album was clearly recorded during intermittent breaks throughout the Purple Rain Tour. And I have to admit, the album does suffer a bit from a lack of focus and a lack of great tracks. Nevertheless, this album is home to Raspberry Bray, one of the most indelibly infectious pop songs Prince has ever written. Or anybody. Uh, or yeah. anybody, you know, complete with like stirring string arrangements that really look kind of gloriously carry the song along. The song went as high as number two, which is ridiculous mm -hmm. <laughs> on the billboard pop single. What the hell kept raspberry beret off of number one. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> Prince keeps getting screwed. Uh, yeah. and, and the album itself uh, peaked at number two, meaning Prince was still riding the high uh, on uh, riding high on the momentum of purple rain. Um, other standout songs on that album are the really tense and bass and drums heavy Funker tambourine and the breezy mid-tempo dance floor filler Pop Life, which also hit the top 10 of the Billboard charts at number seven. No rest for the weary. <laughs> In spring of 1986, Prince released yet another album called Parade, yep. which is essentially served as the soundtrack to another Hollywood film called Under the Cherry Moon, which Prince not only starred in, but also directed. What a piece of Under, dog shit. Under the Cherry Moon. Oh, boy. <laughs> what a piece of dog shit. Yep. Uh, this movie was both a box office flop and a flop among movie critics as well. Uh, it tied the record previously set by Howard the Duck by winning five Golden Raspberry Awards, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> including yeah. Worst Picture. Uh, for those who don't know, the Golden Raspberries are basically the reverse Academy Awards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty much. Uh, um, the story behind this film is pretty interesting. Um, it was originally set to be directed by Mary Lambert, she was a, it was, or back then is, a veteran director of music videos by Madonna and Janet Jackson. 
there was a disagreement about the direction of the film. I'm not sure between who, but I can, I can only guess it was between Lambert and Prince. And uh, Lambert left the set. She was replaced by, drumroll, Prince himself. There you go. He had no previous filmmaking experience. Yes, folks, this was a Warner Brothers film. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In addition, uh, Susanna Melvoin, uh, Prince's girlfriend at the time and the sister of his band's guitar player, like you mentioned, Chris, Wendy Melvoin, she was slated to play the female lead. It turned out she could not act at all. (laughs) So she was jettisoned in favor of, at the time, the bright young British actress Kristen Scott Thomas. Yeah, I, I, that just cracks me up. <laughs> yes, the script is quite terrible with cheesy, cliche, unoriginal dialogue and a pretty lame, predictable plot. Two American gigolo cousins in Nice, France, try to make a living by scoring off of rich women. One of the cousins, the prince character, actually falls in love with a rich girl He sets as his mark, pisses off her rich daddy, tragedy ensues, and the power of love is unending, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Nevertheless, nevertheless, I will try my best to defend this movie. (laughs) Try, try. First, Prince's acting performance is actually better than in Purple Rain. Uh, It's more convincing. It's more natural. It's not as wooden and as, and as stiff as he was in Purple Rain. Second, you get to see the wonderful actress Kristen Scott Thomas in all her youthful, beautiful splendor. Thirdly, and more importantly, the actual filmmaking isn't that bad considering that Prince was a novice at the time. It's, it's well shot. It's well paced. It's decently edited. And the decision to make the movie black and white, as opposed to like that color, that orgy of color that was Purple Rain, um, it was actually pretty bold and inspired, you know, that decision. Um, although the movie is set in the 1980s, it, or Prince himself, <laughs> is going for this 1920s, 1930s romantic film aesthetic uh, with like a really, you know, classic um, string-laden romantic movie score to match. Um, however, unfortunately, this movie score is interspersed with synth-pop funk songs off of Parade, which stick out like sore thumbs throughout the entire movie. But whatever. <laughs> the movie is bad, but it is not Golden Raspberry bad. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, well, that's that's damning with faint praise. Uh <laughs> But, you know, I mean, obviously the legacy of Under the Cherry Moon Parade is that at least Kiss comes out of it, which is my favorite. Yes. That's, that's my favorite Prince uh, song and I think his best. That, that well, song that song's incredible. It's, definitely, yeah. I mean, as for the Parade album itself, I'll admit it's a bit heavy-handed with a few too many jazz soul ballad affectations. It is a love story soundtrack after all. Yeah, but, I know. But, but like every Prince album, even the stinkers, there are moments of his genius that shine through. Um, there's New Position, whose lyrical content being exactly what you would expect a Prince song to be about. New there you Position go. is kind of a the staccato funk grinder. Um, Girls and Boys is a slinky funk groover. 
yes, more sex in the lyrics. But the showstopper, as you say, Chris, is the immortal classic Kiss. Easily, and I agree with you, undoubtedly one of Prince's 10 greatest songs and singles. If you sit down and listen to it with educated ears, it really is kind of a throwback to his earlier Dirty Mind sound. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But way funkier and filthier with this downbeat, and it's infused with the impeccable songcraft and uncanny sense of melody that he had developed in the years since. Oh yeah. I mean, the, the, the riff on kiss is just ridiculously great. Um, and then, but, but also there's a musicianship too. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, it's Wendy Melvoin's, uh, Melvoin, uh, Melvoin. No, well, I thought it was Melvoin. Uh, it's her highlight as a member of his band. I mean, she, there's a little acoustic rhythm riff, that goes on through that. That's just like one of the backbones of the, of the song. But yeah, yeah I mean, just the falsetto, I mean, the audacity of that song, I mean, just, yeah. the, I mean, it just uh, has one of the great bridges of all time too. I mean, sure. The, the, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. The bridge on that song is, is ridiculous. And, and, bridge, and yeah. And it, it also birthed the greatest cover song ever recorded <laughs> by Tom Jones. In the nineties, yeah, he he covered this. I just want your ecstasy and your kiss. (laughs) Well, anyway, the good version, the Prince version. um, Prince was not screwed this time. This song went to number one on the Billboard Pop Singles and went top ten pretty much everywhere else in the world. It was a huge, huge hit. Um, the album peaked at number three in the U.S. album charts. It went platinum, but it sold over two million copies in Europe, making it the first Prince album to sell more overseas than in the U.S. And this is kind of the beginning of Prince being more popular in Europe than in, than in America. So by the end of 1986, Prince is riding high and his Purple Majesty's Purple Rain continues. Watch out, Michael. Now we come to the segment where we venture deep into our vaults, uh, picking out uh, an album of uh, fondness for us or uh, filling an educational role. We want uh, we pick an album that we really want you to uh, love as much as we do. So on that note, Arturo, what are you taking out of the vault this week? Yeah, like for this episode, we are doing Prince versus Michael. 1982 to 1986. So for our vault records, we're going to pick albums from this period of 1982 to 1986. And mine, the one that I chose for this episode, is Echo and the Bunnymen's Ocean Rain. Now, this is one of the most criminally underrated albums ever made by one of the most criminally underrated bands of all time, at least in the U.S. Um, Let me give you a little brief history on Echo and the Bunnymen for those of you who probably don't know about them, especially if you're a younger (laughs) listener. Um, They emerged from Liverpool, England, 
Yes, they're the second most famous band to ever come out of Liverpool uh, in 1980 with their debut album, Crocodiles. And they were part of the burgeoning post-punk movement. They were initially lumped in with other bands such as Susie and the Banshees, The Cure, Bauhaus, and Wire. However, it became clear to anyone with good ears that Echo really were totally different from all those other bands. I mean, they were dark, but they weren't gloomy and gothy. Um, they, they didn't have avant-garde pretensions. You know, pretensions. Um, they had a unique original sound all their own that lead singer guitarist Ian McCullough whose mouth has always been as big as his talent, <laughs> claimed you uh, two completely stole from. Now, I personally don't buy that because Echo and the Bunny Men and U2 came out at exactly the same time. And the Edge had his patented guitar sound already developed by the time U2's first album, Boy, came out, which was in the same year as Echo's first album. Nevertheless, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen, uh, as far as I see it, they did for British rock what R.E.M. did for American rock a few years later. They created the demarcation point where post-punk morphed into alternative rock. Uh, to me, Echo and the Bunnymen were arguably the first British alternative rock band. That's a fair statement. Back, yeah. Back back when The Cure were still doing goth, you know. Um, uh Pete DeFritis was an astounding drummer um, whose tightness and power never let the music dissolve into like ethereal shit mist, like a lot of, like of post-punk bands did. Yeah, um, yeah, shit, shit mist is a pretty good. <laughs> I like that. That's my new descriptor for that. Yeah. Ethereal shit mist. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, I'm gonna, also, I'm gonna, unlike, I'm gonna uh, start a cover band called that. But anyway, go ahead. Ethereal shit mist, yeah. <laughs> unlike a lot of post-punk bands, however, um, Defridus, uh, his drumming actually sounded like drums, <laughs> not not like a pen tapping on your hand. You know? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, it, you know, like like I love Joy Division, but man, so many bands took the wrong lessons from Joy Division. <laughs> Um, anyway, back to Echo. Um, admittedly, uh, Will Sargent's guitar sound, which is you know very chiming, very staccato, was uh, eerily similar to the Edge's, sure. But while the Edge's guitar sound had or has or had a striking aggression that hits you over the top, Sargent's guitar sound had more of a slinky funk sound that kind of more seeped into your skin. You know, Edge hit you over the head with it. Will Sargent kind of like did the subtle thing. And of course, there was singer Ian McCullough. Mm -hmm. he, did, he didn't sound like a vampire a la Bauhaus's Peter Murphy. Yeah, he could actually sing, yeah. yeah. He didn't have that weepy whine like the Cure's Robert Smith. And he didn't do that over-the-top cockney bit like Wire's Colin Newman. What yeah. you got instead was this deeply powerful vocalist, like you said, Chris, he could actually sing, and he could vacillate between that mystic baritone of Jim Morrison and some truly inspired, high-pitched emoting that few singers of his era really could convincingly do. Oh, yeah. Um, lyrics were always kind of an interesting proposition for McCullough. <laughs> um, 
uh, they his lyrics could be overly obtuse and surreal for surrealism's sake, which is never good. <laughs> but they could also be very funny with lots of witty wordplay. They could also be profoundly moving with these impressionistic image fragments and weird yet fascinating metaphysical musings that could resonate long after you finish hearing the song. Um, the turning point for these guys came in 1983 with Porcupine, which expanded the band's sound with these with unusual sounding synthesizers and classical Spanish guitars and really like kind of not quite lush but getting their string arrangements um look no further than the cutter that incredible single from that album which in my opinion packs more melodic invention and musical innovation in just in just under 4 minutes than most progressive rock bands could in entire albums yeah pretty much <laughs> oh, yeah no, that's a great song um, all of this, however, of course, set the stage for the immortal Ocean Rain. Uh, released in May 1984, the string arrangements that subtly colored the music on Porcupine now grew to this 35-piece orchestra <laughs> that embellished and gave life to the greatest, most beautiful songs the band had, ever, had written to this point and would ever write. Uh, to call this a departure from the earlier Bunny Men sound is like saying the Beatles came a long way since Please Please Me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. um, like this is this is 1984, so this is like an era of glossy reverb drum heavy pop and plastic synth pop. Um, yeah. In this era, in it's, this era, it's the year yeah. of Simple Minds. In yeah, exactly. So in this kind of era. Um, Ocean Rain had this epic grandeur that stuck out like an anorexic in a Weight Watchers convention. You know? <laughs> I mean, it really did, you know. But more importantly, though, the classicist and symphonic pop of Ocean Rain sounded timeless then. And if anything, it's actually gotten better with age, you know, um, especially now in a time where a lot of pop music is just kind of inundated with synthetic monotonous sad sack electronic drivel yeah. yeah um songs like silver my kingdom uh and the title track ocean rain just just sail to the fucking heavens yeah um the killing moon which is the most famous song on this album yeah is a top 10 hit in the uk and is one of the greatest rock singles of all time and i will go go to go to my grave that no I, I agree with that i think the the opening uh the opening uh guitar notes are just absolutely iconic and have yeah. been appropriated in a lot of different spots and in a lot of different ways uh, so yeah totally if you know and i call yeah yeah I was, I, I was just gonna say if you know nothing about uh, else about uh echo and the bunny man you've heard that you've heard that little riff that, that, yeah. little, that little chinese sounding riff yeah yeah, totally. And I called this album criminally underrated, mainly from an American perspective. Yeah. In the UK, it's properly revered by both critics and artists. And uh, you can hear, no pun intended, echoes of this album's influence on bands such as The Verve, Radiohead, 
early Coldplay, i.e. back when Coldplay were good. Yes. And and the Manchester band Money, who are really obscure, but they're really good. Yeah. Um, 1984 was a year of iconic pop and rock, as we all know. You know, you had Madonna, Bruce Springsteen, Prince, and yes, Phil Collins <laughs> all dominated the pop landscape. Yes. Um, if I were to do a retrospective top 10 albums list of 1984, this album would easily come in at number two behind only the almighty prince and if we're doing just rock albums ocean rain's the number one rock album of 1984 period you know for me now uh, as a segue you, you say that uh, this band was criminally underrated or is one of the most underrated bands of all time at least in the u.s yeah and, and, and i would say whether it's the u.s or the world my band and the one that I'm going to cover today, I also think might actually be the single most underrated rock band in, Amer- in American history. And uh, talking about ZZ Top, uh, inspired by a couple of things uh, to cover Eliminator. Uh, well, one, Dusty Hill, the, the other guy with the beard. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the less famous, less revered uh, guy with the beard, uh, who was the bassist, uh, just died uh, a few days ago. And so that kind of brought them uh, back on uh, the radar and uh, had the rock nerds like us uh, reaching for old ZZ Top records. But also, I got to thinking that this would be an ideal album to revisit in the vault for this episode, because sure. we're talking about the formation of MTV as we knew it came to know it. And when we think of MTV back in the day, what we consider, and you cannot talk about that story without ZZ Top. Yeah. Uh, And so those guys with the beards is basically what they were known as. (laughs) Now, now here's the thing Uh, with rock and roll. uh, It's a fascinating, obviously I love it. It's, it's the love of my life basically, but you can tell its story pretty much through an examination of its gimmicks. And Eliminator, well, one's easy top anyway, but Eliminator is one of the great gimmick albums of all time, or at least it's a really neat accomplishment. You went from a gimmick-free band in Echo and the Bunnymen to a a gimmick album? (laughs) Yeah, to a completely gimmick album. Now, ZZ Top, it's interesting. I live outside of Houston now. Uh, They're about, you know, they're like basically the, the greatest, one of the great, uh, ex, you know, products, uh, rock and roll products of Houston, uh, of all time. Uh, and for years, I mean, this was a band in the seventies that, uh, had some, you know, sort of marginal hits and had a following and were a big deal. Uh, the rhythms of Eliminator were not anything original. Uh, if you listen to stuff like I'm bad, I'm nationwide. Yeah. Or if you listen to uh, Cheap Sunglasses, I think it's probably a a good example. Uh, Or even like stuff like Tush, uh, which, you know, is Dusty Hill's greatest contribution uh, to the band. Or even like Jesus uh, Just Left Chicago. Uh, You listen to all that stuff. You hear this kind of original uh, kind of deep groove. And not only that, but also Billy Gibbons' uh, ability as a guitarist. Well, with Eliminator, they obviously were swinging for the fences. Uh, they had discovered 
or their engineer had discovered drum machines and uh, bass synth or synth bass. And it was one of these things where it's like, hey, you know, you guys, because they had come out with El, El Loco, uh, which had some modest hits. Uh, and so they were like, guys, you know, you, you want to get on MTV, you guys want to sell a bunch of records, you got to go with the drum machines and the, and the synth bass. And so essentially what Eliminator is, is drum machines and synth bass uh, ramped up to about 120 beats per minute with uh, Billy Gibbons just jamming out. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like I said, Dusty Hill just died and he barely plays on this record. Uh, and so what you get is you get this hybrid of these great beats with these great riffs and just absolute just jamming out. I mean, really just kind of almost like danceable blues rock. And yeah. just iconic riffs, uh, sharp dressed man. Uh, we all know it. Uh, what awesome riff. The, the the wrestling fan in me knows it as the first time I ever heard it was watching a NWA Worldwide Wrestling, and it was the entrance music for Gorgeous Jimmy Garvin. Yep, and it was it was <laughs> it was perfect for that guy's gimmick too, uh, for sure. But then there's other stuff too. You know, give me all your love and legs. Uh, this is what I'm saying with MTV. So. Uh, trivia question for you, Arturo. Yeah. Do you know uh, what make and model that car is? The famous uh, red uh, vintage car that showed up in all those videos with the Zs uh, on the side. I, of it. I, I don't know anything about cars. Tell me. <laughs> okay. It is a 1933 Ford Coupe that oh. uh, Billy Gibbons, uh, who was a car guy, had rebuilt. And mm. it was such a cool car. It's like, hey, why don't we put this on the album cover, put this in the videos? So there was that. And their shtick, well, one, Kevin Bacon stars in the Sharp Dressed Man video. So that's another trivia uh, thing <laughs> for you. Uh, but it's the Give Me All Your Lovin' video. And it's the Legs video that really kind of uh, sold these guys. So, so you've got these, these two guys with like the eight inch long beards and the shades and the hats with the, uh, the guitars that have like fucking bunny rabbit fuzz on them or like dice or whatever the hell they had swaying with the one guy in the band that didn't have beard named beard. Uh, <laughs> Frank beard. Yeah. yeah. Poor guy. Cause he didn't play any drums on that album and he has to be in the videos pretending to play drums, which hey, is, I mean, he, 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 he played on the, on tour. Yeah, and, and, but he was a kick-ass drummer, too. I mean, you hear some of those old, uh, especially like Cheap Sunglasses and some of those like precursors to this uh, on there. And so a bunch of brilliant stuff on there, you know, got me under pressure. Uh, and uh, like I said, Give Me All Your Lovin', Sharp Dress Man, uh, TV Dinners, which is the most underappreciated song on the record. Uh, I love it. Uh, and then, and then you know, we've got Legs. It is diamond certified, uh, has been, uh, has been there, uh, for a long time. And I, I like I said, now is just a good opportunity for our younger fans because CZ top kind of fell off uh, and they became a nostalgia band for guys our age and, and older. And so yeah. they still made a bunch of money on tour, but it wasn't like young people. And so yeah. I implore any of our younger uh, viewers, 
uh, or viewers, uh, listeners, to go out and find ZZ Top's Eliminator. It is an ext- it is a fun ass listen. Uh, the other thing I'll mention too is it's interesting because the album before El Loco uh, may be one of the most like purely sophomorically misogynistic records uh, I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, look, it's got two songs. On, they're both great songs, by the way. But it's got one called the Tube Snake Boogie. Yep. <laughs> and then another one called Pearl Necklace. And so, and so, and so for our younger viewers, go look up uh, Pearl Necklace and what, yeah. what, what that entails. But yeah. they go from there and they graduate to light misogyny. You know, they were looking to sell records. So, you know, got me under pressure, you know, and, uh, you know, legs. This, this is light misogyny, you know. And uh, so at least maybe they matured uh, a little bit. All right. So we have gone on for a long time, Chris. We're going to end it and we're going to tell our listeners that our next episode will be Prince versus Michael, Chapter 3. Yes. Yes. The, bo- the book continues. Uh, we... Book- we segue into 1987 to 1990. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. We know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeonrock. Find show notes and more on our Medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude, stay crude, stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.